Uh, so thank you. Now, uh, regarding this scripture, this is a well-known story, the tale of the prodigal son. A young man leaves home with his father's inheritance, lives it up fantastically for a while, and then comes crawling back after squandering it all on his decadent lifestyle. And here, in the 21st century, this story finds new resonance. It's the story of a sinner. Jesus tells this parable in response to some Pharisees who are angry about him dining with tax collectors and sinners, as Jesus tries to explain that God's grace is extravagant enough to cover our growing tab at the bar. The father in this story, who welcomes his son home with open arms, is God, of course. And the prodigal son, the sinner, is us. But God's grace is prodigal too, abundant enough to forgive the sins of all humankind. A reading from Luke, chapter 15, verses 11 through 32. Then Jesus said, there was a man who had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the property that will belong to me. So he divided his property between them. A few days later, the younger son gathered all he had and traveled to a distant country. And there he squandered his property in dissolute living. When he had spent everything, a severe famine took place throughout the country and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him to his fields to feed the pigs. He would gladly have filled himself with the pods that the pigs were eating, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired hands have bread enough and to spare, but here I am dying of hunger. I will get up and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me like one of your hired hands. So he set off and went to his father. But while he was still far off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion. He ran and put his arms around him and kissed him. Then the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his slaves, quickly, bring out a robe, the best one, and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet and get the fatted calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his elder son was in the field and when he came and approached the house, he heard music and dancing. He called to one of the slaves and asked what was going on. He replied, your brother has come and your father has killed the fatted calf because he has got him back safe and sound. Then he became angry and refused to go in. His father came out and began to plead with him, but he answered his father, listen, for all these years, I have been working like a slave for you and I have never disobeyed your command. Yet you have never given me even a young goat so that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours comes back who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fatted calf for him. Then the father said to him, son, you are always with me and all that is mine is yours. But we had to celebrate and rejoice 
because this brother of yours was dead and has come to life. He was lost and has been found. Hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. Amen. Please pray with me. Everlasting God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations upon all of our hearts serve to glorify you. May they be in keeping with the teachings of our Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. We've all done things that we aren't proud of, especially in college, right? Late in my senior year, about 20 years ago or so, I was uh, attending a party at a friend's townhouse on campus. Now, you have to understand my hair in those days fell well past my shoulders in long, greasy strands. And aside from washing it most days, I didn't use any product. I didn't know what to do with it. It was always a little bit of a mess. Now, a few young women at this party, friends of mine, decided to have a go at it to see if they couldn't give me a more respectable makeover. So they teased it and curled it with their various implements, treating it with sweet-smelling oils and serums until they were satisfied with the result. But they didn't stop there. One of them got the brilliant idea to try applying some makeup, too. And they all began pleading with me to try on their blush and their eyeliner and their lipstick. Now, a few things to bear in mind. First of all, being 21 years old and not accustomed to this much female attention, they probably could have asked me to eat my shoes and I would have done it. <laughs> Second, I like to think of myself as a good sport. You know, even then I had already learned that no one can laugh at you if you're already laughing at yourself. So I'll go along with probably more things than I should. And lastly, I hope it goes without saying that I don't want to be insensitive about matters of gender identity here, especially nowadays, especially with all of the terrible legislation that's been going on. You know me, I think everyone should be free to be exactly who they are. Um, but being who I am, one who identifies as male, this all felt rather uncomfortable, I have to confess. But it's amazing what people will do when they're told to. So go for it, I replied, manufacturing some enthusiasm, volunteering myself as a living Ken doll, if a bit less handsome. They broke out their various brushes and creams, lotions and lipsticks, and applied them liberally as the wild party carried on all around us, folks occasionally stopping by to admire their work. But they didn't stop there either. Next thing I knew, one of them had disappeared into her bedroom and returned with a skirt and a spaghetti strap top that they all agreed would just look fantastic on me. And for a penny and for a pound, I figured, you know, I'll just, I'll just put it on for a few minutes and then I'll change back into my clothes. Well, meanwhile, unbeknownst to me, uh, one of the neighbors had filed a noise complaint with campus security. And just as I was emerging from the bathroom in this getup, the police arrived. <laughs> Everyone line up against the wall, one of them declared when he saw the beer in the kitchen. We're going to be checking IDs. We all did as we were told. We were of age, so that wasn't especially worrisome. But I couldn't help but blush in embarrassment as the officer walked straight up to me, and he had to look up to meet my gaze on account of my high heels, which were already killing me. <laughs> Let's see some ID, young lady, he demanded. I sighed and reached into the Kate Spade purse that I'd been given to accessorize my outfit. I handed him my driver's license, and the cop looked at it intently, and he looked up at my face, you know, caked in all this lipstick, and 
makeup, and he says, this photo doesn't look anything like you. Well, it's an old picture, I replied. <laughs> they threw us all out before I could even change back into my clothes, so I walked back to my apartment, tripping over my heels, trying to make my way home. The party was over. Much fun as it was. The so-called prodigal son enjoyed a good party, too. You know, that's what prodigal means, after all. Wild, extravagant, reckless. We aren't told how old he is, only that he's the younger of two brothers, but he's clearly the irresponsible one. Bored with his upper-class lifestyle, unsatisfied with his father's allowance, which I assume is generous, he decides to cash in on his entire inheritance early. He borrows from tomorrow to write today's checks, financing his hedonistic adventures with his newfound fortune. Now the prodigal son, I'll just call him Chad because I don't want to keep calling him the prodigal son, is clearly unconcerned with sustainability, long-term planning, or the big picture. Chad lives for today at the expense of tomorrow. Instead of budgeting his wealth and living modestly, he spends it faster than he can count it, blowing it all on fine wines and prostitutes and big parties. If this were the 80s, he'd be snorting cocaine out of rolled up $100 bills. Chad can't even be bothered to worry about tomorrow's hangover, much less what to do when the money runs out. And it will, and it does, because his resources, while plentiful, are not unlimited. Now it's clear, given the context of this parable, that Chad is supposed to be a sinner. But what exactly is his sin? Was it gluttony? Debauchery? Fornication? Well, perhaps, who knows what he got up to in those days. But I think Chad's greatest sin is his sense of entitlement. He is, quite frankly, a spoiled brat. He takes everything for granted, assuming that the party will never end. He's the guy who's never been told no who thinks that he's entitled to whatever he craves at any given moment. He's a, a man-child, a toddler that never really grew up, not until he spends his last dollar and he has to get a job shoveling pig feces, a day that he never imagined would arrive. He couldn't possibly have imagined that the party could end. Back in 1992, the political scientist and economist Francis Fukuyama wrote a book called The End of History and the Last Man. He believed that the ascendance of liberal democracy and Western capitalism celebrated in the ashes of the Berlin Wall and the end of the Cold War marked what he called the end of history, the apex of human civilization. We had arrived. Having exhausted our collective experiments in politics and economics, having thoroughly explored the limits of feudalism, monarchy, theocracy, communism, and fascism, the neoliberal fusion of democracy and capitalism had emerged triumphant in the West. And with the collapse of the Soviet bloc, it would soon triumph in the East, too, ushering in a new era and the so-called end of history. Now, Fukuyama's work proved to be a seminal text, but it has not aged well among the many crises of the 21st century. 
Francis Fukuyama lived in more optimistic times, and you could almost believe that the party would never end. In 1992, anything was possible. Despite living on a planet of limited resources, we still believed in unlimited growth, as many still do. We all watched the same news, and despite disagreements, we all inhabited the same political universe, more or less. For most of us, ecological concerns were limited to the diminishing ozone layer, and we could all do our part by wearing less hairspray, which was a big sacrifice in 1992. But a lot has changed these past 30 years, these past three years, even. The pandemic, the worsening climate crisis, and now the war in Ukraine have all revealed our collective vulnerabilities as oil and wheat and other commodities become increasingly scarce, either because of the geopolitical conflicts or climate disasters or because their extraction is more costly and less productive than it used to be. I suspect we'll all have to learn how to make do with less in the coming decades. To quote an article I recently read called Welcome to the Everything Crisis, the author says, if all this were happening on an ever-expanding planet with inexhaustible resources and an indestructible ecosystem with a rock-solid climate, I wouldn't care. I would shrug it off and say, we'll get over it. Unfortunately, the planet stopped growing four billion years ago together with its mineral resources. Oil was a result of 500 million years of photosynthesis and is now on the cusp of a gradual decline. At the same time, the climate keeps deteriorating at a breakneck speed as a consequence of us burning it at an ever more ferocious speed. The elephant in the room, he concludes, that no pundit ever dares to mention, despite a growing body of scientific evidence, is that we have overshot Earth's carrying capacity in every possible sense, and we are now approaching limits to sustain ourselves. Contrary to Fukuyama's theories, history is not over. Time marches on. Life goes on. Life will continue to go on. Life always finds a way. But the party, the age of decadence, cheap stuff, infinite growth, unlimited resources, the party that began 200 years ago in the industrial age, that feels like it's beginning to wind down. Now that said, this isn't necessarily a bad thing, although it isn't without its pain. The truth is we have all been too prodigal, too extravagant, too wasteful, too willing to finance today's wants with tomorrow's needs. We consume too much, too much food, too much land, too much gasoline, too much electricity. And while I hope we don't find ourselves one day shoveling pig feces for methane to keep the lights on, we could all stand, live just a little bit more modestly. That's the Father's invitation in this parable, and that's God's invitation to us. Come home. Come home to the place you once knew, the place where you really belong, a place where there's always enough at the table because we share what we have instead of hoarding it or wasting it. Come home where people are worth more than profit. Come home where we can all live more sustainably. Come home where love and grace 
are never in short supply. That's God's invitation to us, the prodigal children. The party was fun, but it couldn't last forever. Maybe it's time to find our way home. I saw, <clears throat> I saw a video a couple weeks ago documenting interviews with Russian soldiers who'd been captured by the Ukrainian resistance. They're lined up against a brick wall, their wool hats pulled down over their faces, their hands tied. A Ukrainian fighter walks down the line, lifting up their hats in turn and asking them how they got here. Who are they? How did they come to be fighting in this war? And each and every one of these Russian men professes to be a schoolteacher who had been called up and required to participate in military drills, or so they'd been told. Next thing they knew, they find themselves in the midst of a ground war, getting shot at and taking aim at strangers. Unsurprisingly, they surrendered pretty quickly. Well, you're safe now, the Ukrainian officer tells them all. We'll get you some food, we'll tend to your injuries. You will see your families again. Maybe, he adds, the world will forgive you for what you've done. Slava Ukraini, he proclaims. Slava Ukraini, the Russians repeat wholeheartedly. Good, the officer replies. You've just taken your first step towards forgiveness. It's a powerful portrait of grace. These soldiers who can forgive one another for killing each other on the battlefield. Maybe one day the world can forgive all of us, too. Maybe our children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren can forgive us for living beyond our means, for exploiting the earth and each other, for taking what's not really ours, because it's what we've always been told to do. It's amazing what people will do when they're told to. As for God, we are already forgiven. We are already embraced. The light is on. The door is open. God is just waiting for us to find our way back home. Amen.